Hey everyone, this is uh, Dave Broadback sitting here. It's August of 2019 and I'm getting ready for the term. Uh, you may be here. It's really hot right now in here, in this room, but you may be listening to this one. It's very cold. Isn't the internet amazing? Anyway, this is uh, the lecture you're about to hear is from Psych 4006, the history of psychology for the 2019 fall term. Hope you enjoy it. All right, so let me just pull this up on the old iPad that I finally found in my bag because I'm an idiot. Here we go. And so this is jokingly, uh, this is actually a, a title of a song, Here Come Cowboys, by a band <laughs> called the Psychedelic Furs, referring to uh, the Americans. So we're talking about Americans today, make sure this is recording, it is. So. And we're talking, we're talking about Germany and how it influenced psychology greatly. You know, no Germans, no psychology. But the states is equally important in the history of the discipline, not in the founding as much as in the growth of it. Um, so 19th century in the United States, you've got something called faculty psychology. Not the faculty of psychology, but it's a notion that um, we have different faculties, different abilities, okay? It's a, a, from a Scottish realist philosophical approach, okay? And it's something that fits really nicely with American values, it really does. Um, the mind is composed out of a set of faculties, so you can, if, if it's composed of a set of faculties, you can, you can exercise them. Right? It's not the mind is a unitary thing. The mind is a multifaceted thing. I love that, frankly, because I mean that's that's a pretty standard view today, and it was not a view that was as popular when we get into the 20th century. There was actually um, so it's, it's innate. The mind is innate. It's because it, innate in the sense that, well, today we would say we have different modules: a module for space and number and time. They call them faculties. And I think that's true. We all have the same modules or faculties, but the environment that you, you exercise it. Right? That's a very modern view, actually. And in fact, the name Upham, a Scot, wrote a textbook uh, called Mental Philosophy. So it's almost called psychology. <laughs> so mental philosophy in this book is used in Scotland and the United States. That's what's popular. So the Scots are pretty important here. And it's because of this, this philosophy, it's just sensible philosophy, as far as <coughs> psychology goes. He uh, wrote in 1825, when he was 26 years old, which is pretty impressive. It went through 57 editions. Imagine being a student. Sir, is it okay if I use the 54th edition? I know you're using the 56th now. It's insane, right? So he was constantly changing. He did a lot of other stuff, like most philosophers did. He didn't just stick to one area, so he did stuff on philosophy of religion, a lot of other stuff. So the courses that were being taught at American universities were called mental philosophy or moral philosophy. They weren't being called psychology yet. 
But it is what they were doing was psychology. It wasn't experimental psychology. It wasn't really evidence-based <coughs> psychology. It didn't exist yet, but it was theoretical. Okay. And these faculties were divided into three broad categories. One was called the intellect. We would call that today cognition. So it was thinking. One was the sensibilities. That's emotions. And finally, the will. And that's actions or behavior. Upham talked about free will, but again, it's not in the sense of it's a free agent. It's more like a thing making choices for you, kind of a monculus, like a ghost inside a machine almost. That's a weakness. And again, in memory things today, we talk about the central executive and working memory, which is kind of a ghost machine. So it actually works. So. so that's what's happening. Really, we're talking about early to mid-1800s in the US. Then there's a really nasty civil war. And after that, everyone worked on the railroad. Um, you should all watch this, this show. You ever seen that? Hell on Wheels? It's so cool. It's about building a, building a railroad in the States in the 1870s. And it's got Anson Mount, the guy who played Captain Pike in Star Trek Discovery. And he's great in it. And it's actually got Colm Meany, the guy who played Chief O'Brien. So it's got a Star Trek connection. So the modern university, modern American university, and the university we would all recognize them, starts to develop in the US. Uh, I'll, I'll mention Canada a bit now and then. Uh, our university system was mostly, was, was not unlike this. So after the Civil War, there are these universities called land-grant universities. And this is from the Moral Land-Grant Act. Show me. Um, and what the Moral Land Grant Act is, is it's, it gives universities, or prospective universities, land. So this is right in the middle of the, of the, of the, of the Civil War, 1862. Is that right? <coughs> so, uh, and it's giving land to either prospective universities or small colleges which were mostly at the time religious colleges. And it says, we are giving you this land, you can do a lot of things, you can put a campus there, you can lease the land out to people and make money to run your university, you can sell the land to make money, to make the university, whatever you want. These are what becomes the state universities. So all the state schools you talk about, now in Canada all our universities are public, right? In the states there are these private schools, like I was just at last week, Bucknell, or Harvard, or Yale, Stanford, and then there's also these public universities which are like ours, not like our system, government funded, okay? So what happens then is, and this is actually in response to the Civil War, to the beginning of the Civil War, this is about, they say, we want to educate people in military science, there's a Civil War going on, it probably makes sense to educate people in engineering, there's a war going on, science, there's a war going on. But it says don't exclude liberal and classical studies. It's a the broad modern university, right? <coughs> now, while these are all becoming these big, they become places like Michigan State. They become places like oh, the Ohio State University. If you ever talk to anybody from Ohio State, they always would correct you and say, put the V in front of it. Which drives me nuts. So whenever I talk to anybody from Ohio State University, oh, you're from Ohio State. No, it's the Ohio, oh yeah, yeah, said that, Ohio State. 
just do that over and over to bother them. So anything that has something state, and it's an older universe, not like say Lake State, which is quite a bit newer, but like Michigan State is a great example. Um, Ohio State, University of Iowa, anything in the Big Ten pretty much, Penn State, all of those schools, they're all these land-grant universities. Okay? They were just given land, and it was the government being smart. It's like we had to start having universities where more people can go. The private universities like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and again, I mentioned Bucknell, again, uh, all these places existed, and many of them had small graduate programs. And this is, again, because of the Civil War and because of looking to Germany and saying, what do they do in Germany? Oh, they have these graduate programs. We should have those two first things other than divinity and medicine. And they're, they're, these things are all done in the German mold. Like, it's like, how do they do it in Germany? Let's do it that way. So it's not like the Oxford-Cambridge model. It's not the meet with a professor. It's lectures, it's lab time, things like that. It's what you're used to. So real American innovation. And academic freedom and research. So again, it's, it's a German innovation, innovation that's translated into English, basically. <coughs> so here's some examples. Um, Johns Hopkins, Clark, Stanford, <coughs> University of Chicago. Um, some of these are private schools, some of them are public. The important point here is that, look when they're all founded. And you think of these, some of these universities being very old, and they're actually not. The really old ones tend to be private universities. Okay. <coughs> well, oh, th that was all for men, by the way. Because women shouldn't be learning things. Um, there was this idea of the women's sphere for education. And when you read pedagogy stuff from back then, you'll see this. They said, well, the women's sphere of education involves cooking, cleaning, and doing things for men. So, and I'm only a little bit exaggerating. Because I didn't throw in sewing. Um, it's really sexist and horrible. They also thought they were doing the right thing. You read, you read things from back then, it's like, women should be burdened with intellectual pursuits. Healthy. Ah, let's see, you're doing it for their health, keeping them uneducated. <clears throat> bizarre, right? Bizarre in our way of thinking today, not bizarre today. <coughs> so there's actually health consequences for too much cognitive effort for women. For men, it's fine, because men are tough. But for women, they do too much math or science or you know, <coughs> history, they get sick. They hate the vapors or consumption. <laughs> I thought that was much more funny apparently than you did. Anyway, there are several private women's colleges that are founded. They have these women's courses, basically, but they also have the liberal arts. So they have the classics, they have history, they have English, all these great things. So these are places like Vassar, Smith, Wellesley, Bryn Mawr. I think they all accept men now, but they used to be just women's colleges. Women couldn't go to universities. So people said, you know what we should do? How about we have a place where women can go to university and they get a really good education? These are really good private universities. My PhD advisor went to Bryn Mawr, I think. Okay. So there's real academic stuff happening there. Plus there's the stuff about how to make a cake for your man. You know, <laughs> things like that. Okay. 
it's probably, oh, it's definitely worse for minorities. Here we're talking mostly about African-Americans, right? Again, just after the Civil War, people were owned before that war. Think about that for a second, hard to get through our heads. So they didn't think much of education for minorities. This is, by the way, this is called an understatement. Significantly reduced opportunities. In many states, it was illegal for <coughs> African-Americans to go to school past grade eight. Dude. Yeah, oh, separate but equal. This is it. Segregation comes about in the states, and the, the notion is two separate systems, but they're equal, so it's okay. Now, it turns out separate but equal was, it was separate but not equal, right? It's kind of nasty. By kind, I mean horrible. Now, what happens after the Civil War is the, the black community is like, we have to educate our people too. So they create what are called historically black colleges and universities, which are still called that. Um, they used to be places where only black people went to those schools. Eventually, nowadays, white people go to them too, but they're still, the, the student population is mostly African-American. <coughs> so this is places like Grambling, Howard. These are really good universities, right? But at the time, they were created to educate black people about mostly technical things, because people needed jobs. They needed training. So they, about science, but applied science, engineering, things like agriculture. Nowadays, they're <coughs> much broader than those universities. These are, of course, mainly in the South. In the North, the racism was much more polite. <laughs> so, still there, it was sort of more polite. So, in the North, some black people went to university, but not a lot. What they're also doing here is teacher training. Look, we just came out of slavery. Now we have to have people who can train our kids because white people aren't going to teach us. You know why? Because the law says they don't have to. Wow. Right. Those laws, by the way, were on the books until 1964 when the Civil Rights Act was passed very heroically by Lyndon Johnson and the U.S. Congress. So it's in my lifetime, well, just before my lifetime, it's in your parents' memory, and your grandparents, for sure. Because fighting back against that was, like, in the 50s and the 60s, the army taking little African-American kids to school in Little Rock, Arkansas, because they were going to be, they were going to get killed. So, so, so Eisenhower sends the freaking army in to, to escort kids to school. Okay? That's pretty nasty. So the black community is like, no, we need places where we're going to be safe, where we can teach, we can train teachers. There's not a lot of training in psychology, not a lot of psychology major programs. That said, there weren't a lot of psychology courses anywhere. Psychology wasn't yet a thing. So I wouldn't be too concerned, too concentrating on that. Okay. And of course, not many minority people go to grad school. I mean, it's not an easy set of cards to be dealt when you're born of a minority who used to be owned by people. And then, it's probably going to be pretty difficult. Okay, Francis Sumner, okay, 1895. So he's born in 1895. 
his family has memories of slavery. His parents <coughs> wouldn't have been born into slavery. They would have been born just after the end of slavery. Okay. This guy didn't live long, 59, not long. This guy is should be famous. He also kind of just looks cool and intense and serious, right? So he's got that going. Um, first African-American PhD in psychology, almost certainly the first African-American with a PhD. Even. You should know about this guy. This guy should be on t-shirts. There should be buildings named after him. So, <laughs> where he lived, you couldn't go to university. He lived in Pennsylvania. You couldn't go to university. You couldn't go to uh, sorry, high school if you're black. But his parents were like, we can't do that. So his parents were smart people. Pretty sophisticated. So they said, we're going to develop assignments for you, and you will do them. So by the time he's 15, he's basically finished high school, even though he's only 15. Because he's done all these great assignments, and he's applying to universities. And he ends up applying to, where was it? Uh, Lincoln College in Chester County, Pennsylvania, which was the first historically black college in Pennsylvania. And he applies to university there, and he says, uh, they say, you're 15. And he's like, oh, I'm good. <coughs> And uh, you're 15 now. Uh, write, uh, write me an essay. And he's like, in what language of the five I speak that I've taught myself? I'm also a concert pianist. Did I mention I'm 15? So he's a hero. So they go, yeah, you're in. So by the time he's 18, he's finished his first BA. And then he goes on to, let's see, I don't want to get any of this wrong. Turns to Lincoln University, where he does his undergrad, and as a graduate student, uh, he teaches religious studies, psychology, <coughs> philosophy, oh, and German. So he just TA everything. Because he's that smart. <clears throat> a couple years later, he ends up running into a guy named um, G. Stanley Hall, who's an important psychologist we'll talk about in a second, at Clark University. And he says, Can I, um, can I go to PhD in psychology? And Hall was a very progressive person. And he's like, yeah, sure, come with me. So he goes and gets a PhD. So at this point, he's about 21. <laughs> I was fast, 27. I also wasn't in the States in black in 1890. This is impressive. I'm just some guy. He establishes the psychology program at Howard University in DC, which is one of these historical black colleges. It becomes a really important psychology program. <coughs> also, uh, historical trends assignments. You guys, a lot of you mentioned to me, you said, if you looked at some of the early on ones in the 20s, and you said, you noticed that the abstracts were written in three languages, right? English, French, and German. Guess who wrote every English, sorry, every French and German abstract in there that wasn't submitted? Him. He wrote 2,000 abstracts for, for psychology. Because he's like, oh, yeah, I can speak German and French. I'll do it. So he was the abstractor for, for psych ball. That's pretty great. So think about that, though. It's not just translating an abstract. Because you know what an abstract is? You have to actually read the paper, understand it, and then say, OK, from all kinds of different areas of psychology, then translate it in a different language. He should be famous. He's becoming more famous now as people look back and go, there were other people, not just white guys, right? not just white men. 
Speaking of white men, nice transition. Oh man, does he ever look like a psychologist in the 1800s? Doesn't he look like one? Right? He looks pretty great. So there are some parallels between him and Sumner, but they aren't huge. But he has an informal uh, early education as well, but that's because very often somewhat well-to-do people had informal educations. They'd finish, you know, elementary school, and their mom and dad would give them a whole bunch of money and say, go to Europe. So the parallel ends here. But in fact, he learned to speak other languages, he got interested in all kinds of things. So there is or some parallels. So he just bums around Europe, as one does. Uh, and his father was like, you must learn, learn many languages, because to be an educated person, you, you can't just speak English. You have to speak other things. So he's learned like five other languages as well. As did his brother, Henry James. The author, Henry James, is his brother. This is a family dinner must have been fascinating around the James table, I was guessing. So he goes to Harvard in 1869, uh, gets, so 42, 69, so yeah, yeah that's, that's normal speed. Gets a medical doctorate, indeed. But he doesn't like the sort of materialistic philosophy of, of, of medicine. Materialistic here doesn't mean he wants to make sure he gets the newest iPhone. It means not spiritual, not metaphysical, okay? <coughs> James was a, in later in life, in fact, he started looking for psychics. That we went a little bit off the rails there. Which is too bad because of, you know, anyway. Um, he discovers a book by a French philosopher called Renouvier who talks about free will. And again, this is free will, it's a way to, do, to scientifically think of free will. It's not the free agent per se, okay? And his idea is, an, the, value, the values he was using to is pragmatism, which is a very American school of thought. It's things have functional, <coughs> ideas have, what do they accomplish? If they accomplish good, they are good. Okay? It's a very, very, very new world idea. <clears throat> okay? And it's talking about functional things, and think about Darwin is all about function, a lot of it. So you can see why he got on well with the idea of Darwinism, though it's materialistic, which is a strange difference. Questions so far? Okay. So he starts teaching at Harvard in 1873. By 1875, he's like, I'm going to put on a psychology course. He's teaching in the philosophy department, by the way. So this is the old days. When you have an MD and you show up and say, I'd like to be in your philosophy department, department and look at you, you look like a philosopher. You're in. Here's maybe Brad Crash that makes us want to interview. But it's not like today. Like, I couldn't get a job in a philosophy department. I don't need philosophy degrees. Back then, it's like, oh, yeah, you speak lots of languages, go to Europe, you're in. Yeah, it's not like he was a bad guy to choose. I'm just saying the world was different then. So he puts on the psych course. He, he uses Upham's book. And then he's like, we need a lab to demonstrate ideas. I've been reading a lot of this stuff that's coming out of Germany from Fechner and uh, what's the, oh, I forgot the other guy's name. The vision guy. The other German. Um, I've been reading this stuff, it's great, Weber, Weber's law. I want to have a lab so the students can, so he sets up a lab. 
He sets up a lap. And he says, you know, this book, this book is, a, is a mental philosophy book, this up and book. We need a textbook. Damn it, I'll write a textbook. <coughs> I'm William freaking James. Also, my brother's a famous author. Show him. And it's a good book. If you're doing anything for your paper at all that has anything to do with early psychology in North America, go get a copy of Principles of Psychology. Now, if they, I don't have to buy a book, they don't have to buy it. It's out of print. It's out of, it's out of copyright. You can download it legally. You have to steal it. You can probably get it on the uh, iBooks store or Amazon for your Kindle or whatever for like 99 cents. Don't pay more than that because somebody's making money off someone else's words anyway. And it's so beautifully written. Unlike Wundt, which is painful. It's beautifully written. And you read it and you think, oh, I, it's like when you read Origin of Species, you read it and go, this is a really good thing and I've learned a lot. It's the same with this. And the other amazing thing is he's doing it almost all from first principles. Though sometimes he'll say things like, some interesting things are being done by Professor Ebbinghaus, which is so awesome. So Principles comes out in 1890. It's probably psychology's most famous book. Um, <coughs> on methodology, he says the primary, because of course there's a research method section. It's a psych textbook. It's his fault that all, you, you know, 2127 is his fault. The primary method will be introspection. Not the introspection sort of that we think of when we think of the bad introspection stuff, more like the Voigt introspection, okay? So he also talks about general reflection. This is where it's not so good. It's not as quite rigidly defined as Kitchener or Voigt. So now it's like thinking about how your mind works, and that's a problem. That's too, it's not falsifiable. <coughs> He likes laboratory psychology. He likes psychophysics. He's read it in the original German. He knows it's good stuff. But he's got some skepticism about it because it seems too, well, too materialistic, I guess is the right way to say it. He calls it a brass instrument psychology. Yeah. Which is funny because the people in psychophysics latch onto this as a good thing and they call what they do brass instrument psychology. They're like, yeah, that's what we do. Fight me. That's, they're saying in German, they probably didn't say <coughs> So they're, they're used to rap. They're like, yeah, we got equipment. We've got, we measure things. Wacky. So they like the idea of calling it brass instrument psychology. They, they take it, yeah, this is a badge of honor. It's like when someone calls me a geek and I go, huh? And? <coughs> Except again, no one's going to talk about me in 100 years. Unless I do something really horrible. So, and that's not the plan. He likes a diversity of methods. He also likes comparative psychology. First person to say, we should be studying animal behavior and cognition too. He didn't like questionnaires much. Questionnaires already existed, you know? <coughs> Paper and pencil questionnaires. He called them among the common pests of life. This is why you gotta love reading James, because he throws in, <coughs> it's kinda like, if you were reading it today, the language would be, these are bullshit. Like, that would be the kind of words he used. Like, this is really kind of provocative for 1890. Because he's just dismissing a whole area. He's like, well, that's just crap. 
That takes some that takes some guts. Right? So he, he wasn't stupid. Okay, consciousness and habit he talked about stream, the stream metaphor. Stream of consciousness. Ever heard that expression? Yes. <coughs> He said consciousness was personal. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Now yeah, we can't study it easily. We have to rely on our own introspections. We're going to hell. I mean, metaphorically, we're going to hell. Some of you are, I think. It's continuously changing. Again, stream, stream of consciousness. He also talked about it being like a train. And he used the expression off the rails. That's where we get that expression from, William James. And the, sen the sensibly continuous, that means like you, you don't feel sensations individually. Each sensation sort of leads into the next. And that's true, isn't it? Right? Right? Like I don't look at, like when I look back here, and then I look over here, it's not like <coughs> those are two different pictures. It just happened. So I kind of like that. And again, no one's thinking about these things. So him saying them, while it seems obvious, is pretty good. And he talked about consciousness is selective. So he means attention selective. Oh, selective attention we talked about today. I remember reading this in a cognition seminar in grad school, reading principles, and just marveling at how much stuff you got right. Right, from, from guessing. Oh, what's the function of consciousness? That's cool, because he's talking about what it accomplishes. This is a Darwinian approach. It enables us to adapt quickly to environmental change. Oh, that sounds very Darwinian. <laughs> he's read Origin of Species. And it's any intellectual has read Origins at this point. It's in the air. It's evolution's the thing. So of course he's read it. And the function of habit, so things that don't, have, don't need consciousness, is to free up cognitive capacity. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I like that. That's in fact that's almost certainly true. Questions so far? You impressed by James? Because you should be. That's pretty impressive. Oh, we all came at once. Okay, you know the James Langer theory of emotion? You probably already did that. You get the physiological first and you label it. You've read into that already, right? In your life. A psych student. So we'll go into that too much. He, later on, he he does something that probably isn't great for his legacy as a psychologist. Now his legacy at this point is pretty much stamped in. So now we're into the 1900s kind of thing. And he's, people look at him and say, who are you? And he goes, I'm William freaking James. Me and some German invented psychology. And I'm going to do whatever I want. And what I'm interested in is the philosophy of religion. It's like, uh, you're a psychologist. <coughs> and he's like, you know what else I'm interested in? Psychics and uh, angels. <laughs> if anything with that guy goes aliens on, on the History Channel, he's into that. And you know what? He says, I don't say that they exist. I'm having an open mind, and I want to find evidence. And he tried. He tried to do some experiments. He uh, looking for ESP, all these kind of things. Didn't, didn't find anything, but he kept his mind a little too open. 
to quote Richard Dawkins, sometimes your mind can be so open that your brain falls out. And that's kind of what ends up happening here at the end of James's life. He's like, I know I haven't found anything, but I'm sure there's something out there. I'm out here now in the backyard looking for fairies. Excuse me? <laughs> like that kind of thing. So it's too bad that he did that. Like I said, the Pierce, is Pierce thought, oh, you're screwing your legacy. And he's like, no, 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 I'm a scientist. I want to find it if it's there. But he never finds anything, and he keeps saying, I want to see if it's there. So he's like Fox Mulder from the X-Files without any evidence. <coughs> right? You watch the X-Files. References as fresh as 25 years ago's TV. I mean, I like James a lot, and reading James is wonderful. Like, it's really, you go, I wish I could write like that. You really do think that, but you, the later stuff's a little weird. What's happening? Any questions on James? Because we'll move on, we'll talk about the effects of it. Good? Okay, so now we have graduate programs in psychology, specifically in the US. There are some in Germany, but now in the US, and I don't have to actually speak, you probably could speak German, but. You can do it at home, basically. So G. Stanley Hall probably had the first PhD in psychology. <coughs> His PhD was like literally in psychology. Uh, that's at Hart, so he did it with a guy named William James. Also very professorly looking. People are starting to look like they're modern people made up to be in a play. <laughs> So he does lectures on education at Harvard and also Johns Hopkins, and he gets an appointment at Johns Hopkins at Baltimore. So he gets a job at Johns Hopkins. He sets up the first US lab of experimental psychology in 1883. This is only four years after Wundt's lab. The American Journal of Psychology is founded in 1887 by G. Stanley Hall. Just at a grad school, he does that. When I was just at a grad school, I was just wondering how I was going to eat. By 1887, okay, so he gets his PhD in 1878. By 1887, 11 years later, he's a president of Clark University. So he's probably not 40. Jeez, that's impressive. It's really the first graduate school only university in the US. There are some others now, but it's the first one. So Clark becomes this basically grad school only university. And this is where we talked about some of that. He ends up going to do his PhD there. Uh, he was, he had a lot of students who were African Americans. He was, uh, today we call him an ally probably. So he was really very forward thinking. You look at that guy, you don't think flaming liberal, but that's what he was for a day. So a little bit about Hall. Uh, psychology at Clark involved Monday evening seminars. This sounds like uh, grad school for me. They weren't Monday, they were Wednesday, but there were seminars you had to go to, and if you don't go, you got in trouble. You were marked on them, you just had to freaking go. If you didn't go, you got a little phone call, not back then, but you got a phone call from the chair of the department saying, where were you? you know, I was chasing a chickadee that got out of the lab down the hall, and that happened once, and so I got up, it's okay. <coughs> A lot of interest, people talk about everything, including comparative psychology, including some of the stuff that's coming out of Europe, like 
Freud. So they were talking about a lot of stuff. Also, the common theme though was evolution. Again, it's in the air. Right? He talked, he called his psychology genetic psychology, meaning I'm tying this to biology. I'm saying there is a biological basis to behavior. He had a book, he wrote a book called Adolescence in 1904, the first book on psychology of young people. Kind of cool. He said that in this book, and in his other work on developmental stuff, that, and this is not true, but he said that individual development mirrors of evolution. This is what's called recapitulation. It's, he sees he doesn't quite understand evolution. He thinks there's a ladder and you're going up that ladder as you get older. So that's not true. It's not an uncommon thought, though. Really interested in Freud. Freud is kind of sweeping the world at this point, and we will talk. We will have a whole class on psychoanalysis. If you've noticed on the website, I've got the word "boo" and after it, but we've got to talk about Freud. He has a conference uh, at Clark in 1909, and he everybody comes, including a lot of these Freudians show up, including Siggy. That's what his friends call him. Called Siggy. He played guitar. Spiders. Also, Wilhelm Wood was a hell of a baseball player. I am, however, in a fantasy baseball league where we use famous historical figures <coughs> and pop culture people. Wilhelm Wood is playing left field for my team. Leads the league in home runs. Got him a loser. So, the lab at Clark uh, had comparative stuff in it, which is kind of great. And it's the first place to study animal learning using mazes, something we still do. I called John Watson up from the miners. Yeah. There's also many Mad Men characters in my team. It's really, really weird. So, <coughs> but Woods also lead the lead slugging percentage. So evolution's in the air. It's a lot of functionalism out there. The Germans look at structure. They're considered structuralists, and we know that it's not quite that simple, but they care more about, it seems, the, well, they're doing psychophysics, so they, they talk about mechanism. The Americans are talking about functionalism. What does it accomplish? Right? So, which again, kind of fits culturally, which I like. Did I lose my connection? Whoops, see, this is why it shouldn't be so many. <laughs> there. Okay. Great. So it's pragmatic. It's a pragmatic, right? It's, it fits back with pragmatic philosophy, which is what does something is good if it accomplishes something good. So it really fits with the American outlook, uh, like um, national mythology, which is really great. I mean, it shouldn't surprise you that the the, the Fashions in science are affected by where the science is done. And it's part of the story. It's not the whole story. It's the same with the structuralism. It's not the whole story. It's part of the story. But it fits with sort of German culture, the idea of understanding how things work, how things work together. Right? You always hear things about German engineering. 
it makes sense that the Germans were doing one thing and the Americans, and to a lesser extent, the Canadians were doing something else. So it's kind of cool. I love seeing those kind of things in history. So in Chicago, this is the University of Chicago, you got John Dewey. Um, he gets a PhD from Hall. He writes an article called The Reflex Arc, talking about learning and how it's reflexes. Oh, I see. So now we're getting a little bit functional, oh, sorry, structural. But it's still about uh, learning. He also didn't want to look at things as their components, but as a whole. So it's a reflex arc, not stimulus response. <laughs> he looks like at a central casting, they got a professor, right? Like, I mean, get me a professor. And as soon as you came to university, you found out the professors just looked like everybody else. But we, before you got here, you thought, oh, we'll all have the jackets with the patches and the whole thing. And then you find out, like yesterday, I looked like an aging Kurt Cobain um, with less heroin and not killing myself. But so this is uh, Dewey. He looks like he doesn't laugh at things. He just says, that's pretty funny. Like, it's like one of those guys, you know? So there's an integrated whole that serves the individual to get along in the environment. This is a very functionalist idea. <coughs> he's really important in the history of education because he's saying that everybody should get an education, no matter if they're men, women, black, white, don't care. Everybody should get it because it's good for the country and good for the individual because it allows them to help society and help themselves. It's a very again, pragmatic view. By keeping people down, by not having access to education, <coughs> we're screwing ourselves. So this is an interesting, I love this argument because he's you gotta figure the thought process here is like everybody's sexist, everybody's racist. You know what we'll say? It's better for all of us if everyone's educated. We don't have to say, women are as good as men, black as good as white. I don't want to say that out loud because all that's going to do is stir a bunch of shit. You know what I'm going to say? It's good for everybody if everybody gets an education. It's a very good selling approach, right? Well, he did certainly think that, uh, believe in sort of progressive ideas of equality, he did. But he didn't use that as the selling of how, of why we should have universal education for all people. That's very clever. Very clever. Here's another uh, one of these guys, Angel or Angel rather, James, goes on. <laughs> I love this. He goes to Germany, tries to get a PhD, doesn't finish, gets an academic job. Doesn't work that way anymore. You can't say, I never finished. Now they say, Can I see a copy of your PhD? And you go, What? Okay, and you scan it, email it to the dean, they go, oh, Okay. The University of Chicago, pretty amazing place. Um, there's this elite program in psychology there, it still is. Um, <coughs> and he writes a book called The Province of Functional Psychology. The other actually just calling it functionalism. They're saying, we're looking at, again, it's this, that guy's intense. You'd never try to get an extension from that guy, right? I'm sorry, he's hiding. That's an intense guy right there. He gives a, a presidential address to the American Psychological Association, and he just says, I'm a functionalist, here's how functionalism works. 
Every year when the APA elects a president, they get to give a, a, a speech. And it's usually, it used to be a big deal, it's not so much anymore, but it used to be this big deal about what their theoretical views are and how will they think psychology should go in the next year. So he was saying structuralism is what is mind and functionalism is what is mind for. And he said, Kitchener says this is biology and this is anatomy and this is physiology. And he said, no, this is not good to me. Uh, he says, no, we're not biology. We're our own science. I don't like that view much. I like the idea of functionalism and structuralism together. Harvey Carr, there's him. Felix, what a nice looking man. He's very understanding. He'd give you all extensions. Another good one of the Chicago guys. He gets, he's one of the first people to talk, he used to do maze learning stuff. Um, and he writes a book in 1925 called Psychology, a Study of Mental Activity. And it's a popular textbook. It's used until after the war, after World War II. That's a pretty popular intro book. And it's a book that has a very functionalist approach. And again, it's a book that, the biology is really starting to be ignored now. This is to the detriment of the growth of the discipline, <coughs> it seems to me. But that happens. All right. Hey, let's talk about us. James Mark Baldwin. There he is. Oh, man. And there's another guy. These are actually some of his instruments. Um, they're, they're made of brass. They're brass instruments. He's appointed. He works with Wundt, but he doesn't call himself a structuralist, though he's a psychophysicist. So he's, it's, he's classic Canadian. <coughs> I will be influenced by Europe and America. I will be somewhere in the middle and not bother anyone. first lab in the British Empire. Was the first lab in the British Empire in London, England? No, it was in Toronto, Canada, at the University of Toronto. And there's a little museum at U of T now where you can go see all the stuff in his lab, which is really cool to see. Because <coughs> you think to yourself, James, that's James Mark Baldwin stuff. development. And he influenced Piaget, which, so he, the University of Toronto has a strange history in Canadian um, psychology, because up until, it's the first lab, so it's scientific psychology, then it kind of fades off and does a lot of applied stuff, a lot of educational stuff, and a lot of developmental stuff. That's bad stuff, it's just that it doesn't do hardcore experimental work so much. And then after the war, <coughs> U of T decides we're going to have a, we're just going to have a world level psychology department, and they just start hiring people away from other universities. They literally just give people better offers. So they take people from Harvard and from <coughs> McGill and from all over the place, and just they call them and say, "We'll pay you double, coming." And most of us, because we have no money, we, yes. So it goes. U of T goes from being. A, a nobody in psychology past 
Baldwin. Like, look, they were good people, but it wasn't the same as it became. To being, um, when you get into the late 1990s, and there are uh, a number of people start looking at what the best psychology departments <coughs> in the world are, and they try to come up with metrics. There's no really good way to do this. But one of the ways they do it is by looking at the number of citations to articles from people from that university. U of T wins every freaking year, and I mean for the whole world, right? When I got into U of T, I didn't realize, I didn't figure out how did I get into U of T. Seriously, there were 400 applicants, they took 12 of us. And it's like, so you 11 are smart, and me? Then I realized how graduate school admissions work, which is there's a professor who wanted, had a graduate student opening, and I had talked to her in advance, so I got in. I mean, I had good grades. Well, anyway, this isn't about me, it's about James Mark Baldwin. But I've seen the brass instruments. I have been falling down drunk next to the brass instruments after one of those seminars I told you about. It's always my fear that I'm gonna wreck these things. They used to just be in a display case, it's like, whoa. Now it's a little museum. Much better idea. Now, Columbia, not Columbia like Columbia in South America, I mean Columbia University in New York City, um, Cattell, is at Columbia, also a functionalist. And one of his students is Edward Thorndike. There's Thorndike. Can't tell if he's a nice guy or really intense. Might be somewhere in the middle. <coughs> he's the guy who comes up with, you know the puzzle boxes? With cats, you know this work? Right, so the cat's lit the puzzle box, and it has to find its way out, and there's a lot of different things it can manipulate. And then it eventually learns more and more quickly, or it learns to get out more and more quickly, so it's learning, right, the law of effect, that's him. It's a very connectionist model, it's trial and error learning, it's stimulus response connections. This is functionalist so much that the learning happens because of what the behavior accomplishes, right? And that's really how learning works anyway. But it's beautiful functionalism. <coughs> Woodsworth, another famous guy. Um, motivation, his big thing is he's not much he looks kind of nice again, perhaps he's got cross between nice guy and maybe he's got some serial killer eyes though, don't you think? Right? A little bit of... Modern approaches to a lot of things um, didn't like the idea of formal discipline of children that's amazing, for the time it's not uncommon that parents raise their kids that way now that you know we don't have a set of house rules. Like it's changed. He replaces SR stimulus response learning that Thorndike talks about with SOR stimulus organism response. The organism is an active 
agent in its own learning. It's not passive. Oh, I think there might be a mind involved there. He produced, in fact, the modern terms we use when we talk about experiments. So if you want to, again, another way, person want to get mad at for 2127, he talked about manipulating independent variables, hold, holding other things constant, constant, measuring the dependent variable. You know, Bacon and Newton, they were all talking about those things, but they didn't call them independent and dependent variables. They didn't talk about control groups. All the terms we use today, he invented. So again, you want to get mad at somebody for that? It's him. Him and that <coughs> Don Cherry-like caller he has. I'll tell you, kids, good things happen when you hold all variables constant and change one thing. You kids out there, it's Don Cherry talking about experimental psychology. So, and he talks about there's the experimental research and correlational research. Again, it's, it's very, now, we're not talking about, and he was sitting in a monastery thinking about thinking. It's now very concrete stuff, right? They talk about causality for correlation could it go one way or the other. People knew this, but no one was writing it down, basically. Okay. Okay, one of the things that functionalism would it can be useful in is mental testing because we're going to find out how so and so, some people, or some person's doing on something. And if we have that, we can help people get into the right place, the right job, the right schools, whatever. So, Alfred Binet, oh, we're in France. Yeah, you can tell we're in France, just look at that guy. He looks French. Hello, my name is Binet. Bonjour. Come on, c'est pas. In psychology individual. By the way, in French, it's psychology. You pronounce the P, which is, is the weirdest thing when I first learned that. It's like, no, it's sign. In French, same with German. It's Volker psychology, that word. I don't even want to try that. <laughs> so he was saying there are individual differences, there are general laws, but also individuals are different from each other. <coughs> That's cool. So he's saying that everybody develops the same way, same set of rules, but at the end of the day, oh, God, I can't believe I just said that cliche. God, I go. Okay, that's better. Um, I just, I hate cliches, and I just use one, it really bugs me. Yeah, it's because it's getting late. Um, so, when things are finished, everybody's going to come out a bit different. That's good. So he develops these scales for measuring intelligence. By the way, the, the reason he's doing this is because in France they decided to have universal public education. What radical idea? It's a very 20th century idea, but they do it in the 1800s. And, and the, basically, Binet goes and talks to teachers and says, Well, what's going to happen? And they're like, there's going to be people in here of various levels. <coughs> There's going to be all kinds of abilities in here. And he's like, okay, we have to find a way to test kids to make sure we can identify the kids to put them in the right grade, but also the kids are getting extra help. It's a very modern view, not just a 20th century view. So we talked about different mental levels. Debil, which means 
disabled, I guess is the best way to put that, means two levels lower than you should. Okay? For your age group. He says intelligence is malleable. You can teach it. It can get better. <coughs> By using things he called the mental orthopedics. So this is the idea of you know, orthopedic shoes, they, they help somebody if you've got flat feet, they help you, they, they help you, or whatever. Well, he's saying, look, we can, for kids that need more help, we can help them by giving them sort of exercises, by having how their schooling works be a little bit different. It's really modern. It's a really modern notion compared to what most people thought back in the late 1800s. And again, it's a very functionalist idea. It's like, what, are, what is this accomplishing? What are these tests for? Right? One more. One more slide. So Goddard, not the rocket guy Goddard, different Goddard, gets a PhD from Clark, G. Stanley Hall. And he invents the term <coughs> idiot, imbecile, and moron. These are actual terms that had, used to have a clinical meaning and don't anymore. They were not meant to be pejorative, they were just terms. Okay? So he translates Binet's work into <coughs> English. And he says that you're an idiot if you have a mental age of 1 to 2, an imbecile 3 to 7, and a moron a mental age of 8 to 12, when you're an adult. Um, his said, he said the cause of this was heredital, heredital, heredity, that it was completely hereditary, unlike Binet who said, you know, there's an environmental component here. Um, he had the Vineland Training School was a place to teach people who were uh, morons <laughs> to be somewhat productive, but they were isolated from society, and also they wouldn't be able to breed. So instead of like Binet wanting to like, get integrate all kinds of people into a classroom, this guy's like, no, 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 we gotta keep these people away, and also probably get operations <coughs> on them so they can't have children. So on that happy note, We'll finish this stuff up next time. Um, and uh, we'll also talk a little bit about that James as an historian paper, which is actually kind of, um, well, a little weird. Thanks, everybody.
thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures at Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music 